Welcome to the Taking the Leap podcast, where you can learn how to launch your full-time career in this part-time gig economy. No matter what career you're in, you have the potential to be the best version of you and overcome whatever obstacles stand in your way. And now, here's your host, the CEO of Bonvera, Bob Dickey. Welcome back to Taking the Leap podcast. I'm your host, Bob Dickey, and I'm really excited to have uh, a good friend, and the Bonvera Medical Director, Dr. Jeff Davis, with us this afternoon. We are doing this from a geographically separated location uh, during these days of COVID-19. We are not together in the studio. Dr. Jeff is calling in from Wichita, Kansas, where his medical practice is. And let me give you just a brief background for our listeners. I know many folks may be new to the program and have not had an opportunity to hear Dr. Davis in uh, previous segments and the things that he's done for us. But I want to make sure all of our listeners have an understanding of his medical background. So Dr. Jeff Davis has a BA and an MA from Baylor University in Texas. He has a medical degree from the University of Texas, and he did his residency at the University of Kansas. He has worked with the FDA in many clinical trials. He's at the leading edge of medicine. He's board certified by the American Board of Family Medicine. He's an advanced fellow in regenerative and functional medicine. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about Dr. Davis is the fact that he is at the forefront of preventative healthcare as opposed to just wanting to treat everybody with a pill. That's one of the things that I am very impressed with Dr. Jeff Davis and his medical practice there in Kansas. And Jeff, thank you so much for being a part of the program this afternoon. I know, as I mentioned to a lot of our followers around the country that I was going to be interviewing you, my email and Slack message channels were flooded with all sorts of questions. And at the top of the list, folks are just wanting to know, what is your research? I know that you are at the forefront of this, of kind of studying it, understanding it. In one of our earlier conversations, you said, man, Bob, you know what? My ideas and thoughts on this coronavirus have changed as I've done research. So could you just share with us some of the things that you are learning and the latest and greatest news that you have as a medical professional? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. I like to tell people that, you know, with this coronavirus, it really caught a lot of us off guard. And, you know, I think there'll be a, a good post-mortem done on this, hopefully when it's all said and done, and we'll be able to kind of retrace our steps and find out what happened. But as you know, this is a virus that originated in Wuhan, China. And actually, the Taiwanese were some of the first ones to raise the red flag. Initially, when it was brought to the World Health Organization's attention, the World Health Organization downplayed it, saying that they did not believe that human-to-human transmission was possible. We do think this disease started with transmission from a bat, and then that went to an animal called a pangolin. And a pangolin, if you've never seen pangolin, they're actually kind of cute if you like anteaters and armadillos. But they look like a really tiny armadillo anteater. They've got scales all over them. And I guess in these markets in Wuhan, China, they're sold illegally. And somehow the virus crossed between two species and then crossed into human species. So Taiwan was the first to say this virus does appear to be transmitted from person to person. And now we know that China was hit pretty hard with this virus. Their numbers continue to be suspect in my mind. I don't think they're being completely forthright reporting. They did announce a few weeks ago that they have no new increases in numbers. And so when you look at epidemiology, every day you're looking at the number of new cases. That's not the total. The total will continue to grow, but it's the number of new cases that's important because Mm -hmm. you want to get to the point where the number of new cases is less 
than it was the day before. So when they reported that they had a, a very sharp flattening of the curve, I was a little bit suspicious. And then, of course, a week later, they reclosed all their theaters and, and re-implemented a lot of their social distancing, which tells me that they probably had more cases than they were admitting to. Mm-hmm. But so in just in terms of, of how my mind has changed on this, I mean, one of the biggest things, and this was really brought forth by Von Vera folks with our last talk that we had, mm-hmm. the Zoom call. You know, someone was asking uh, repeatedly, what about masks? What about masks? And at that time, you know, in the back of my mind, I thought masks seemed like a great idea. I see a lot of people in Asian countries wearing them. But I had taken sort of the same guidelines that the CDC was touting, which was that masks weren't going to be protecting us from this. And I will tell you, it was the Bonville folks that really made me look a lot more closely into this. So I spent the next three to four days looking at the research on droplet spread, looking to see whether this was truly airborne or not. And I will say, you know, we came out several days ahead of the CDC officially recommending that people wear their cloth masks. So I really appreciate everybody's questions because those questions make me rethink things. And I think that's why this dialogue is so, so important. There's so many things we don't know about this disease. And this was a conversation we were having in our staff meeting today. Mm-hmm. There's questions I still have about testing. We've been working very hard to find an accurate and reliable test. And I will tell you, that's still a struggle in my mind. So those are just a few things that have changed. Again, I think the social distancing is very important. I'm tired of hearing that word, but I do think it has slowed the spread. Um, Certainly, we haven't heard of any other nursing homes being hit hard, so I mean, Mm -hmm. that's very encouraging. One of the biggest death counts was in that nursing home in Washington, and fortunately, I haven't heard of any other nursing homes having a large amount of spread, and that's probably in part due to the fact that they're not allowing visitors, which is, there's a high social cost to doing that, but I think the net effect is that's been a positive in reducing the spread of this disease. From your medical experience and the research that you've done, do you agree that this is as contagious and as concerning as is being reported in the media? I know from time to time, I certainly don't believe hardly anything I see on social media, but you know, there will be some folks who will say, oh, that, you know, this is no more than the common cold or the flu. It's, it's no big deal. I personally don't believe that's the case based on the research I've done and the doctors that I've interviewed, but I'd like to get your perspective on that. And I think that's a common thing that I've that we've heard, and I'll be the first to admit that I said that when I first heard the reports of COVID-19. To me, it felt like the media was just looking for another thing to report on. You know, this thing was highly politicized in the beginning, because if you'll remember, Trump shut the borders down ahead of the World Health Organization recommendation. Mm-hmm. And he got a lot of flack for doing that. And even Joe Biden at the time said, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. And now even Joe has come out saying, yeah, that was the right move to make. And of course, nobody's reporting that now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've moved on to whatever the next thing is that the media is angry about. So I'll admit that politicization of this, I think, has made it all the more difficult to get good quality information. As far as the severity of it, I do believe this is more severe in the flu. So the reason people will say that, by the way, is that the total number of people that die from the flu in any given year is a big number, but it's spread out over the entire year. And so what we saw is we saw this rapid increase in deaths that's much higher than the increase in deaths that you would see in flu. And so the researchers recognized this and said the problem is this thing spreads faster than the flu. It tends to hang around longer and it produces a a more severe respiratory illness in those who are at risk. So the hard part is, is when you define what who's at risk, 
it's anybody who's in the older age groups, and I would say that's 60 and above, but for each decade of age that you reach, the risk jumps up quite a bit. And then it's people who have health problems. And those health problems are simple things like even hypertension or high blood pressure that's well controlled Mm -hmm. was recognized as a significant risk factor for this disease. And by the way, in China, the ones that were hit the hardest were the ones that were obese. And obesity in China is not nearly as big a problem as the obesity problem. And you guys have heard me talk about the obesity problem in the United States. It's 40% almost of people that are overweight or clinically obese. Mm -hmm. And so that's probably what got my attention. The second thing that really got my attention that said this is different from your standard flu was when I heard that Spain was converting one of their ice rinks into a, a makeshift morgue. They had run out of freezer space for dead bodies uh, and had to had that the only amount of ice in that city. Uh, I can't remember which particular city it was, but they converted an ice rink that normally would you know have hockey players on it and ice skaters, and they were using that to temporarily store bodies while they were awaiting funeral services. So yes, this is much more severe than the flu. New York is having record numbers of people die every day, and I don't want to use New York as the example of how this will be typically. I mm-hmm. think New York is the example of what the worst possible outcome would look like, and again, New York is a very unique place in that people are literally stacked on top of each other very high population density and the amount of space that's shared between those people is a lot greater so for instance when you look at the number of people who are taking public transit in in any given day it's a significant portion and so Mm -hmm. we know that this virus can survive on metal surfaces uh, it survives on plastic and even paper for more than a day so that combined with the fact that new york was a little bit slower to shut things down i think those things really combined to make new york just sort of a perfect storm and italy saw a similar thing so italy is another example of probably what worst case scenario would look like but again italy is very different from the united states they greet each other with a kiss so that's cheek-to-cheek contact which is common I mean, we know that's how it's spread. They also have a lot of older people living with younger people. So it's a stacked multi-generational and they have some of the oldest people in the world live in Italy. So again, they were another place where I think this thing was just primed to be the worst case scenario. So when you look at some of the rural areas in uh, Kansas and our area, for instance, you know, we have not seen very many cases. We only had one death in Kansas and we have a very low case rate. But you look at people and how they, you know, move about their day. We all have our own cars. We go into grocery stores that aren't really that crowded. I mean, it's rare that I have to wait in a line more than five or six people. And in New York, a line of five or six people would be considered a short line. Mm -hmm. So I think there's, you know, there's significant differences between influenza and, and just the way that people, when people get sick with this, I think the thing that frightens me is that people go from being slightly sick to seriously sick in a matter of hours. And we don't see that with influenza. So you could literally have this, be walking around for days, not having any symptoms or showing any symptoms, then in the evening start to show some symptoms. And by one or two o'clock in the morning, you could be in a dire situation, correct? That's correct. So what I've been telling my patients is if you have, you know, the symptoms we've been hearing are if you have a fever and a cough, other symptoms that are probably less reported, but still important for our listeners to recognize is because this virus enters through a receptor called the ACE2 receptor. ACE2 receptors are found predominantly in the lungs, but they're also found on cardiac tissue. And this thing can also enter through the gut and there it would have different symptoms. So it would have diarrhea, abdominal cramping, maybe nausea and vomiting. And then the 
European Association of Otorhinolaryngologists, or we call them ENTs, ear, nose, and throat doctors here in the United States, they put out an official bulletin saying that the other early symptom of SARS-CoV-2 is a loss of smell. And again, I want to make clear, SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus that causes the disease, and the disease is called COVID-19, which stands for coronavirus, so CO, corona. VI virus disease, meaning you've got this, the clinical manifestation of it. And then the reason we, we name it 19 is because it was it was first discovered in 2019. So this is a novel virus. A lot of people have been confused and said, well, we've had 18 other viruses like this. It's not named like we do hurricanes or other things. Um, so that's, that's where the terminology comes from. And then the term SARS for the name of the virus is, uh, again, COVID-2. Uh, so SARS is, uh, is a severe acute respiratory syndrome. Okay. Um, and what's unique about this one is it's not looking like a typical pneumonia. It's almost looking like people are dying from a lack of oxygen. And so I've seen reports now lately where people have, you know, been even in the 60s on a pulse oximetry, which is the, where that little red thing on your finger and it mm-hmm. tells you how much oxygen your blood's getting. Normal for us should be around 92 to 98 percent for most people walking around. And there were people who were in the 60s and didn't weren't aware that they were having that much difficulty with oxygenating their blood. And once you cross a certain line, it becomes very difficult for your organs to get enough oxygen to operate. So that's why I tell people if you're going to have symptoms fever and your symptoms are mild, meaning you're not having respiratory distress, then you're probably okay to stay at home. And of course, I always tell people, reach out to your doctor, your local community may have different advice, but this is what we're telling our patients. However, if you have difficulty breathing, I tell people, this isn't where we wait around and see how you're going to do. You need to be assessed by a medical professional. So instantly you have difficulty breathing. You need to go and get medical treatment right away. I would say yes. Okay. So it almost sounds like drowning. Like it's a, it is, yeah. In fact, one research said it looks like drowning, or the other term that they've used is HAPE, which is high-altitude pulmonary edema. And so with that, that's where they said it's like you've gone from sea level to 20,000-foot elevation, and you just suddenly you can't oxygenate your tissue. Mm. And so, yeah, it does look more like a drowning. Wow. So the projections over the next few weeks here within the United States, uh, they're saying it could be the most severe that we're seeing. Would you agree with those assessments? Is that what the medical professionals that you're reading and tracking, is that what everybody's agreeing with? Yes, I would. But I would also remind people that half of all the cases in the United States are located in New York. So even though this is a very severe thing for us as a country as a whole, there will be parts of the country that really won't be affected by this. I know our local hospitals have actually sent people home because there's not enough work to do. I mean, the shutdown for us has really slowed even the normal work that's in a hospital. ER nurses are being sent home because there aren't even patients coming to the ER. And one interesting fact is the death rate so far for this month is the lowest it's ever been. Now, this is overall death because people aren't out driving. So we're not having accidents and traumas related to alcohol consumption and driving. We're seeing less homicides. So it's very interesting to see socially what's happened when we've locked people in their homes. You know, I know we're not actually being locked in our homes, but having people social distance, it's cut down on a lot of the normal things that Americans die from. So again, that's going to throw some of the numbers off. You'll probably hear naysayers say, well, less people are dying now than have ever died. But you really have to dive in and understand what is it that people are dying from? And I think New York 
is a good example, again, of what the worst-case scenario does. If we don't take this thing seriously, then we are all destined probably to look like what New York is dealing with, which sounds to me like a nightmare. Yeah. One of the questions that I got from numerous individuals was, what are some of the things, the precautions that we can take to protect ourselves? I mean, obviously, we're hearing you don't touch your face and wash your hands and things like that. But it seems like almost on a daily basis, there's some new treatment that's coming out or someone saying, hey, this will actually help. Like one of the latest ones would be, uh, there's a chemical or a property in tonic water that supposedly helps. And, you know, so what are some of the things that you are hearing or some of the home remedies and things that people can be doing to be protecting themselves? Well, you know, the tonic water is interesting. So tonic water has quinine in it, and you can hold up a black light to tonic water, and it'll actually glow because of the quinine that's in there. And quinine is part of what's in the hydroxychloroquine and the mm-hmm. chloroquine sulfate, which is the medication you're hearing a lot of people talk about. But I think the main thing that I would say to people about what's in tonic water is we don't have any data to tell us whether that's preventative, number one. And number two, tonic water has a load of high fructose corn syrup in it. So if you look up Schweppes tonic water, the second ingredient after water is high fructose corn syrup. And if you've ever heard me talk, you'll know how much I hate that sweetener. Mm -hmm. That one is responsible for a lot of the cardiovascular disease we going around. So I don't recommend people drink a lot of tonic water just for that reason, unless you can find one that doesn't have any high fructose corn syrup in it. And then I would say, I don't think it's going to hurt you to drink that tonic water, but I can't say necessarily that this is going to prevent the illness or prevent the disease. Now, we do have good data to show that vitamin C has been preventative. And again, a lot of the damage we're seeing in tissue, we think maybe because we don't have enough antioxidants present. Mm -hmm. So high amounts of antioxidants, IV vitamin C was one of the things that was shown by the Chinese Medical Association to be very effective in the treatment of even the mild cases. Mild to moderate cases were being treated with IV vitamin C. So certainly taking vitamin C, not harmful, easy enough to do. Take too much of it, you're going to get diarrhea, so your body will kind of tell you. Other things, making sure that your vitamin D is in the normal range. I'm not telling people to use very high doses of vitamin D, so we usually have what we call bolus vitamin D, where people will take massive doses for a few days. And the reason is is we don't know what that does to the ACE2 receptor. There have been some thoughts, theoretically, that that could upregulate the receptor that the virus comes into. But I'm certainly telling people, I think having a healthy amount of vitamin D means you're going to have a healthy operating immune system. And so that, I think, is good advice. Zinc is turning out to be very effective. You know, you've heard me talk about zinc, and there's plenty of zinc found in smoked oysters. So I've been encouraging my patients to eat smoked oysters or to get a hold of a zinc supplement, I think would be fine. Um, So those are probably some simple things that people can do. You know, as far as the other simple things, I mean, I always start with the basics, basics of hand washing. This virus is surrounded by a lipid membrane, which means it's a fat. And anything that cuts grease is going to destroy this virus. So simple soap, hand washing with soap and water is extremely effective. So having people just practice more basic hygiene, and it is amazing when people talk about touching their face, you really don't think about it. And then until somebody says, don't touch your face, and you realize you touch your face all day long, Mm -hmm. we all do it. So the more we wash our hands, the more we're going to cut down on that. And then again, I think the mask is just a simple, effective thing. When I go to the store now, I have a cloth mask that uh, was given to us by a patient who sewed them at home. And it's just a simple elastic band mask. And she put a little HEPA filter that she made out of a vacuum cleaner bag. I put that on the inside and I wear this mask when I go into the stores and I wear my little 
nitrile gloves that I got at uh, Harbor Freight, which unfortunately they're sold out of them right now. But, you know, just simple things like that. My son, he came up with a great idea. He was going into the store to get groceries for our family. And he walked over to the produce section and put two plastic bags that you would normally put your vegetables in. He put those on his hand, grabbed the cart, mm-hmm. and started walking around the store and got his groceries. And I thought, that's a really ingenious way. I mean, he didn't have gloves, but at the end of the grocery visit, he's able to peel those off and put them in the trash can. And so that's one very simple way that he could reduce his exposure. And I think that's probably the most important thing to understand is that the people who are getting the most severe disease are the ones that have the most exposure to viral particles. So the truth is we need to have a certain amount of people get this virus. That's the way we defeat this. A vaccine is nowhere close to being developed. I disagree with Dr. Fauci's optimism of having a vaccine ready in 18 months. I did some research into this and the fastest vaccine we've ever developed was the mumps vaccine and that was three years. Now, mind you, we had 20 years of research on mumps. We knew mumps backwards and forwards, and it still took us three years to develop a safe vaccine. So with the next closest one, I believe it was the HPV vaccine, 15 years to develop that one. And then rotavirus was close to 20 years in development. So the problem with vaccines is you're giving a medication to healthy people. So the burden of safety on those vaccines has to be much, much higher than other drugs that we take. Because if I'm giving a drug for somebody who has diabetes, for instance, I know it might have side effects, but we always talk about the benefits outweigh the risks. Mm -hmm. And in the case of vaccines, you're giving these to healthy people who have no problems. So you really don't want to cause a problem in those people. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I think is being overly optimistic about this vaccine is we've never had a vaccine work against coronavirus. And the last coronavirus vaccine that was developed for SARS-1 actually made it worse for people. So that was a vaccine that actually caused more harm than good. So we have to be very, very careful. And you guys remember me talking about on the first podcast that we were talking on is that if you hear that people are saying we need to skip the animal trials in these studies, we need to put the brakes on fast. We need to call every one of our legislators and say, absolutely not. We should not be shortcutting the normal safety procedures that we've got in place for developing these drugs. We have to test the safety of all of these before we look at efficacy. And that's the thing that's probably making me a little bit nervous is I don't know how they think they're going to have this thing done in 18 months. Explain real quickly for those who weren't on the other podcast, why the animal trials is so critical. So with any FDA trial, it's very expensive to bring a drug to market. And the first step is a phase one study But before you can do a phase one study, you have to do an animal trial. And animal trials start with mice, and then they go to, I believe, rabbits. They kind of work their way up to primates. Primates is kind of the last step. Once you've shown that it's safe in mice and it's safe in, maybe dogs are in there somewhere. And then you do a primate study. And because primates are as close to us as we can get without being human, then you move to a human trial. Phase one trials are a very limited number of people, 15 to 20 people. These are all completely healthy, no health problems at all. And these are brave souls to enter a phase one trial. So they usually get reimbursed for these trials pretty handsomely. But they give them the medication and they observe to see if there's any negative outcome. And then it moves into phase two, which is sort of expanding that safety to try it in a larger population of people. And then in phase three, they're doing efficacy to see not only is it safe, but is actually doing what we want it to do. So that's a very dumbed down version of the process of what a drug goes through to get through the pipeline. But that can take, like I said, decades Mm -hmm. for that to come off successfully. And that's assuming that there's no problem in designing this study. So these studies get designed and they may do the first study and decide, oh, you know what, that was the wrong 
dose that didn't do what we thought it would mm-hmm. do. We're going to have to do another study now and we got to change the dose. Or, you know what, we didn't select the right patient to use this in, so we need to do another study. So it's a very arduous process to develop a medication, and most of them are developed by the United States. So I really don't want to see this one hurried through. And so that's why I talk about needing to establish natural immunity, which was what we were talking about before we started the podcast, which is how do we define the people who have come in contact with coronavirus and have maybe they were asymptomatic their body built immunoglobulins against us so Mm -hmm. they have the antibodies that are protecting them and they're safe to return to work which is what you know i'm trying to work on in our state establishing a routine for getting people back to work because this thing is crippling our economy Mm -hmm. not because of the cost of the disease but because the loss of income from everybody staying at home. Yeah, I heard somebody liken it to the economy stopped rather suddenly. It was almost like a car hitting a telephone pole and the thought that we're just going to be able to put it in reverse, get back on the road and get it started back up with no issues is not likely. And the individuals that I'm speaking with, both here within the United States and globally, are very concerned about the prospects of restarting the global economy. So I think that there's you know a lot of folks trying to figure out how how is this going to work? Yeah, Dan Crenshaw, he said it really well. You know, this is an ex-military. and He said, this is akin to having a small military force getting rained on by a hail of bullets and beating a hasty retreat in the middle of the night. You know, yeah, you're going to do that. That was the appropriate move. But those soldiers would then sit in a safe spot and they would then decide how they're going to re-engage the enemy. And they would do that by making sure, okay, how much ammunition do we have? Is everybody's gun in working order? Mm-hmm. Is everybody's equipment? Is your radio, your communications working? Do we have an idea of who the enemy is and where they are? Do we want to wait for uh, daylight to advance? And that's the part I think that's bothering me is I'm not hearing enough from our legislators and our leaders. And here is how we're going to reopen and we're going to reopen in a safe way. Mm -hmm. So, again, that's probably where I've spent the majority of my time right now is trying to find testing that is both accurate and relevant to be able to certify when somebody's safe to return to work. And the population of people who are at risk, you know, we really need to protect them as much as we can. So we may need to hold them back. Mm -hmm. But certainly for the younger population. Population. I mean, our 18 to 30 year olds, if they use increased hand hygiene and wear a mask, they're probably okay to return to work now. I mean, I think that's a controversial opinion, but I look at it and I go, those are kind of people that we need to get access to the virus, make the antibodies so that the rest of us are safer because of this will reduce the spread. Explain how when a group of the population have these antibodies, how does that then percolate through the rest of the population? Does it inoculate the rest of the herd? My antibodies won't do anything directly positive for you, but makes it more difficult for me to get the disease again, like chickenpox. Once mm-hmm. you've had chickenpox, your chance of getting chickenpox is almost zero. Let's say that SARS-CoV-2 actually in the same way that chickenpox does. In a perfect world, once I have it, I'm good. I won't infect others. And so now taking a link out of the chain mm-hmm. uh, that could potentially pass it to other people. So, so now all the, the people spread. I come in contact with, it stops the spread. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's this concept of herd immunity. And, you know, there's varying ideas on how many people need to become immune to it before we reach that herd immunity. But it's generally thought to be around 40% or more. And so we need to be looking at how can we safely put people back into the public and be okay with a certain amount of people getting this mild illness, the milder form 
form of the illness, which is going to be younger people who aren't obese, who aren't on medications for hypertension or don't have pre-existing conditions like heart disease. And then those people, as they get the antibodies, it makes it less likely for it to spread to the rest of us who are vulnerable. Is there any concern that this is going to mutate? Yeah, so it's interesting. This particular virus uses mRNA, so it's messenger RNA. And those historically, those viruses are very prone to mutation. There are some examples of mRNA viruses that are not prone to mutation. I believe mumps is an example of that. So for instance, mumps, for as long as it's been around, there's only one type of mumps virus. The reason we've been unsuccessful to have a vaccine for common cold is that there's antigenic drift and then there's antigenic shift. And so those terms basically mean that the virus changes its DNA over time and makes it harder for our immune system to be able to detect it and recognize it the next time. So think about this as being somebody who they're trying to come rob your house and you recognize the guy the first time. Ah, that guy here was yesterday. Mm -hmm. He was kind of shady looking. But today that guy's wearing a wig and glasses and a mustache and you don't recognize him. Oh, come on in. You're not the guy who was trying to rob my house. You bring him inside your house and realize, oh, nope, this guy's a bad guy. Don't want him here. Mm -hmm. So we don't know yet whether this can mutate. I think that's going to be another one of those questions that time will tell. Another question I have for you is, how do you believe this is going to change the future of healthcare? I mean, right now you're seeing an explosion of telemedicine. I, I was speaking with a doctor just a couple of days ago, and his analysis was, look, I still like to be able to have one of my patients in my office to be able to put my hands on them, to be able to see it's easier. He said, I do think that telemedicine is you know, here to stay in some form coming out of this, but he didn't quite have an understanding of where it might be. I know you're at the leading edge of medicine and specifically telemedicine. What's your thought process on this? Yeah, so this is really interesting. This was one of the things I got wrong is I thought that most other clinics were really going to struggle because the insurance companies don't allow telemedicine visits. But very quickly, the restrictions were lifted. Now, we still don't know. Unfortunately, in the United States, most healthcare decisions are made with the background of what will insurance pay for, mm -hmm. which in my clinic, I've gotten away. I don't rely on insurance companies to pay me. We practice in a direct care model where we work directly for patients. Patients pay me directly and then they can get reimbursed by the insurance company later if they want to. So for me, I don't really care what insurance companies think in terms of what's being covered and what's not covered. But I think some of what your friend is saying is right, is that once the cat's out of the bag, it's very difficult to put it back in. And a lot of my friends have said, you know, these virtual visits are, are really efficient. I can talk to a patient about their blood pressure. They can review their medications. I can be in the comfort of my home, they're in the comfort of their home. Mm -hmm. And we've said that all along. That's a very efficient way to give care. I joke to people that the most important tool I have is not my stethoscope. It's my iPhone and my AirPods. I've gone through so many charges on my iPhone in a day, it's unbelievable. But this is how we take care of patients nowadays is by being able to use these devices. So yeah, I think that's one revolution that you're going to see. How this will change the face of medicine going forward, I hope that at a public level, we do what Korea did. So Korea got hit very hard by the first SARS virus and their country decided they didn't ever want that to happen again. So they worked vigorously to develop a pandemic response team. And so they've shown with the SARS-2 virus that they've really, in terms of globally, I think they win. They've done the best job to clamp this down. 
They have mobile testing units everywhere. There's like phone booths that you can walk into and anybody could be tested for free. The country absorbed all the cost of testing and they were able to rapidly identify who's at risk and who needed to stay home and quarantine. And so that's really what I hope we develop here. The other thing is I hope we recognize we need to not have so much dependence on other countries for our medications and for our durable equipments mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, the masks and the ventilators. And I think there's still potential problem out there that we haven't realized is that most of our generic medications, just to put this in perspective, Bob, do you know where most of the antibiotics that we use in hospital settings, so these are IV injectable antibiotics, do you know where the two places most of those antibiotics come from? I'm going to guess China is one. China is one of them. And the other one, I kid you not, Lombardy, Italy. So the two places hit the hardest are where we rely on these IV antibiotics. Now you might say, well, Dr. Davis, why does that matter? This is a virus. We're not using IV antibiotics for this. The problem is when you have people hospitalized Mm -hmm. with this and they're on ventilators, they tend to get these things called nosocomial infections. And a nosocomial infection is a bacteria that you got as a result of being in the hospital. So these are additional infections people are getting just because they're in ICUs, just because they're having a lot of people move around, they're immunocompromised, they're under a lot of stress normal bacteria start to grow. So I really fear that we're going to have shortages of things that we didn't really think we would ever have shortages of because all these places that we're relying on manufacturing are now hit hard Mm -hmm. and they're not able to pick back up and increase the supply numbers for us. So if there's any legislators that happen to listen to this, the thing I would say, number one is we've got to bring manufacturing back to the United States. We have to be more self-sufficient as a country because I don't think these pandemics are going away. I actually think these pandemics are only going to increase over time. In our global supply chain, it's been engineered for you know peak efficiency. And this crisis is showing that any chain in that link can bring the entire system down. I mean, just this week, The Economist, there's a magazine. Of all the countries I would have anticipated reading this type of article, I would have never guessed that it would be France. But the legislature in France, they're talking about removing a lot of their dependency on China, moving a manufacturing of key defense and various items back to France. And I know that that's a, a big debate that's happening here within the United States. So I think this is opening up people's eyes to be like, you know what, this globalization and the efficiency that we've engineered does not work during these times. So I think that's going to be a really interesting reversal of many years, 20 plus years that we've been doing it. The one of the discussions I had today with one of my other providers was I really worry that we're going to lose more social liberties or liberties in general Mm -hmm. as a result of this. And I think it's similar to what we saw after 9-11, you know, with Homeland Security, we suddenly gave up a lot of our own personal freedom in the effort to combat terrorism. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be constantly exposed to germs and viruses. This is the way our immune system works. Mm -hmm. And so I worry that if we live in a sterile environment, where we're not being exposed to bacteria, that's where we see a lot of autoimmune dysfunction. In fact, in the developed worlds where things are very, very clean, they have massive rates of autoimmune disease. And in countries where everything is quote-unquote dirtier, they have fewer autoimmune diseases. Mm -hmm. But certainly I think we all have to be on guard that we do not let the government encroach more on our liberty just because of this one virus. Yeah, I echo those sentiments. And right after 9-11, I mean, it was unprecedented, the power that the federal government got to track U.S. citizens, eavesdrop on conversations, the FISA courts, all of that. It was just like, and everybody signed off on it. And the 
dead of the night, be like, hey, this is what we need. And you know, once yeah. the federal government gains power, those powers never go back to the people. Never give them back. And uh, yeah, so we, I think we've got to be very, very careful there. So on um, practical application for folks that are listening, I'll tell you what, you know, we have been very, very blessed to have you as the medical director for Bonvera. And at the, a lot of the things that we're doing with our physics MD line, I mean, we can't keep vitamin D and vitamin C in stock. We've just launched the new immune boost, which has some green tea extract in it. A lot of folks have been asking questions on that. What is the proper dosage? An average healthy citizen ought to be taking a vitamin C or vitamin D or the new immune boost. How do they work together? I mean, can you give any insights on that? You know, with me, it's all about testing. I mean, there are a few micronutrients that you can take where really don't need to be tested. Magnesium and vitamin C are two examples that you can dose to bowel tolerance, meaning that if you take too much vitamin C, you're going to have loose stools. Your body will let you know. And the typical dose, you know, most vitamin C comes in 250 to 500 milligram capsules. Mm -hmm. It's pretty easy to take two and a half grams of vitamin C one to two times a day. That for most people is pretty well tolerated. For vitamin D, the recommended daily allowance internationally is 4,000 to 6,000 international units per day. And so again, a 5,000 IU capsule once a day, I think for most people is adequate. In our clinic, we do test vitamin D on almost everybody. What's great about green tea is those antioxidants we were talking about earlier. Green tea has a chemical substance called ECGC. It's a very potent antioxidant. Excellent to drink green tea. Just another form of antioxidant like vitamin C. The book of the month that we're reading as a, a leadership team this month is titled Why We Sleep. I think it was Matthew Walker. He's a PhD out of Berkeley. And it was excellent book. I was gonna ask you if you read it. This was given to me by a, a CEO friend of mine out of Atlanta. His wife is a physician there, and it has been one of the books that I have gifted most frequently. I was absolutely astonished how many issues that we have in America that can be tracked back to sleep deprivation. And so give us a couple words and comments on this book, what you've learned and why sleep is important for us as we're building our immunity. Yeah, Matthew Walker is one of my favorite people to listen to. And I subscribed to a subscriber-only podcast where the physician was interviewing Matthew Walker. And it was about six hours of talk just on sleep, wow. divided over three different podcasts. And then they did another six hours just on diving even deeper into that. So sleep is one of the pillars of health that we talk about with our patients. And yeah, you're right. I mean, even subtle things like daylight savings time. Oh, it's only an hour. That shouldn't be impactful. But there are so many metrics you can look at on that day. You know, the day that people lose an hour of sleep, car accidents go up, mistakes in surgery happen more often. I mean, all these things that you wouldn't attribute to losing just one hour of sleep can be traced back to that. And, you know, we talked about seven and a half hours as being the absolute minimum amount of sleep that you need per day. And most people in America are getting barely six and a half hours. In Japan, the average is six hours of sleep. So, yeah, sleep critical for human functioning. There is no way to store sleep. So when you go through a sleepless night where you only get three or four hours, you can't then add three or four hours of sleep onto the next day to catch up. Brain function is tied to it. Cardiovascular health is tied to it. So many things are tied to just not getting a good night's sleep. And probably it's another great thing that people can do to help themselves combat this virus is make sure you're getting eight hours of pillow time. Mm -hmm. Don't be on your phones when you're trying to go to sleep. You shouldn't have a TV in your bedroom. You should have the room dark and cool as possible. Don't eat late at night. Don't exercise right next to bed. I mean, all those things are going to disturb your sleep. So anything you can do to keep yourself in 
a balanced sleep pattern will ultimately make almost all areas of your health better. Wow. Well, Dr. Davis, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to be with us this afternoon. Incredible information. Every single time I chat with you, I learn not just one or two new things, but I have like pages full of notes and I'm like, okay, I need to re-listen to this because there's so many nuggets that you dropped. It's such a blessing to have you as our medical director. I just want to say thank you once again for all your help in creating our vitamin and supplement line. And then for you taking the time out of your schedule very frequently to have these types of conversations with our team and with our customers, helping educate them so that we can live a healthy and optimal life. So blessings to you and your family. Stay safe there in Kansas. And I'm certainly looking forward to engaging with you in the very near future. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your listeners. Like I said, they've come up with some great questions that have forced me to go back to the drawing board and think more critically. So I appreciate the back and forth. It's been rewarding from my side as well. Awesome. All right. We'll talk to you soon. For everybody that's listening this afternoon, this is Taking the Leap Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Bob Dickey. Hope you enjoyed this latest episode. We're going to have more great content for you coming in the days and weeks ahead. So make sure you tune in to your podcast provider. And if you enjoyed this, make sure to pass it along to friends or family, those who feel may benefit from this, and also make sure to give this podcast a rating. We greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Taking the Leap podcast with your host, Bob Dickey. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at www.takingtheleappodcast.com and bonvera.rocks. You can also find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Taking the Leap.